Welcome to Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor, your one-stop shop when it comes to animation news and commentary. I'm Drew's co-host, entertainment writer Jim Hill, and he and I are recording this week's show on Friday, December 17th, 2021. And Drew, you've been busier than ever. <laughs> I, I don't know if our, our listeners have been keeping track of the numerous stories you have posted over on The Wrap this week, but you interviewed Marissa Tomei about how her version of Aunt May for the Spider-Man film franchise was formed. I'm so tempted to read it, but I haven't seen the movie yet. But you did, did a piece that tried to zero in on when exactly in the MCU timeline Spider-Man No Way Home actually takes place. Yes, yes. Yeah. Okay, Don't well, read it yet, uh, Jim. Don't read it yet. The plan is Nathan and I are going to go to a Tuesday matinee. So I, yes. I, I'll well, check now, it with you Now Tuesday. I'm worried about both of you again mm -hmm. with COVID and Omicron. So. No, no. It, it, actually, it's so interesting you say that because literally this afternoon we did our at-home COVID test, which, boy, when you are literally sticking the swab up your own nose, yeah. <laughs> like, you know, it's you, you've reached an interesting moment. But we both got little blue lines, so okay, good, yeah. it, we're, we're negative, and we have to do within 36 hours our second test. But yeah, it's getting a little scary out there. Yeah. I mean, you saw the stories that have just broken in the last hour or so, like Radio City just yep. shut down. And it's like, oh no, this was all supposed to be in the rear view. I know. I feel so bad for the Broadway shows because they're all going to be closed, and and this this is the time to get those tourists, you know. And, no, and that money. that's it exactly. This is where you made bank, and then you know had the money to to roll through January, February, March before the snow melted and the tourists came back. Yeah. But. I did want to mention also, you also broke an interesting bit of animation news over at the wrap by shining a spotlight on that that holiday-themed stop-motion thing that Ted Lasso people Yeah, did. that was cute, wasn't it? It was. Yeah, that it was, was good, yeah. Yeah. So is there anything else coming up in the next couple of days that people should be paying attention to? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've got a lot of stuff pegged to Nightmare Alley, which is mm. Guillermo's new film, which I absolutely loved. I did a big feature about why he doesn't shoot his movies widescreen, which I think mm -hmm. is pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. I did a big chat with him sort of about the movie as a whole, including what Disney thought of the movie when they bought Fox. And that now they have this very hard R <laughs> film noir mm -hmm. on their hands. And I've got a lot of stuff leading up to Matrix Revolutions next week. So I interviewed the producer today. I've got an explainer kind of of the, the previous trilogy in case okay. you don't have the time to rewatch before the fourth film. Um, mm. And then a lot of animation stuff coming down the pike. Uh, so oh, yeah. yes, yes, yeah. yes, yes. Okay. Well, now, me, myself, I, I haven't been quite as busy as Mr. Taylor. I did, however, get down to New York City. This past weekend, to check out the inspiring Walt Disney, the animation of French decorative art exhibit, which just opened at the Metropolitan Museum of Art on Friday, December 10th. This really spectacular exhibit, which will only be at the Met's Fifth Avenue location through March 6th of next year, is really a must-see for all you Beauty and the Beast fans out there. Uh, and on the second half of today's show, I'm going to share an interview that I recently did with Wolf Burchard. He's the curator who pulled together this exhibit, which features 150 pieces of artwork that have been pulled from uh, Walt Disney's Animation Research Library, the flat files at, at Walt Disney Imagineering, even the Walt Disney Family Museum uh, contributed some pieces. So, oh, I can't uh, wait to hear that, because I... I, I 
I, I was supposed to be a part of this interview, and Jim very thoughtfully sent me the book, um, the uh, program book, which is just beautiful. But, of course, at the last minute, a meeting was put on my calendar, and I couldn't couldn't do it. But I am so excited to hear it, and uh, I'm so excited you got to talk to him, Jim, and got to go to the show. Because if you had said I'm going this weekend, I would have been like, maybe not, Jim. Maybe not. So <laughs> Maybe not. No, yeah. that's it exactly. But again, that interview will be in the second half of the day show, and first comes the news. And as always, news portion of fine-tuning is brought to you by Strobook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Jim Hill Media Podcast Network. For a worry-free travel experience, please book online at storybookdestinations.com. Okay, so Drew, yeah. this show, if everything goes according to plan, <laughs> posts on Tuesday, December 21st, first official day of winter 2021, and just four days out from Christmas. Speaking of that holiday, I wanted to be sure that our listeners knew about a terrific new holiday special that recently debuted on Netflix. Now, earlier this year, you and I talked with Mike Pleese and Dan Ojari. They were the guys who did uh, Robin Robin, yep. which was that terrific new holiday special from Ardman, uh, debuted back on November 24th. Well, uh, Drew, we must have been extra good this year because Ardman delivered a second holiday special. And have you seen this one, Sean? The show. I haven't. The I know we talked. It, we talked about. I think it debuted like right before we recorded a couple a couple of weeks ago. Right before we recorded, I said, "Jim, there's a new Sean the Sheep on Netflix," and I don't think either of us had even heard it was coming out. No, no. And in fact, that's what makes me crazy because it's classic Ardman. I mean, it's laugh out loud funny. And what's I, you know again? I, I only went. And watch this because you mentioned it again because it just wasn't on my radar. Yeah, and it's one of these things where it somehow manages to be timeless, but yet very much of today's world. In fact, there's a scene in this special where parents don't notice that their house has been overrun by Sean the sheep and his flock because they're too busy editing and forming an Instagram post. I mean, they're just sort of face down in their phones and they don't realize their house is being trashed and. It's seriously funny. I would put this right up there, Flight Before Christmas, uh, with Disney's Prep and Landing and Olaf's Frozen Adventure, which for me are the, the gold standard for modern era holiday specials. And right. Did they ever do a did they ever do an animated special on the, a wish for wings that work? They did. I don't entirely understand what happened there. It's hand drawn, it's beautifully done, and it just fell through the cracks. I don't think I've ever seen it. I mean, and I loved that book as a kid. I mean, that was right when I was, that was peak, you know. It was new oh, when I was a kid. So, I mean, I, yeah. yeah. The ones that walked away, that the Bloom Counties, the Calvin and Hobbes, right. it's just, you, you left a hole in your heart. But yeah, it's it's out there. If you hammer on Google, every so often it surfaces. Okay. Remember, there's that animation test that Eric Goldberg did for the, the Opus movie. It's Opus in a porta potty who doesn't want to come out because you're going to feed me to a, a whale shark. What was that? Who who was supposed to be making that? I've never seen that test. I've got a. I uh, just saw it. I found it on Google already. But seriously, if you Google the number of promising projects that Eric Goldberg was teed up to direct when he stepped away for, from Disney after Aladdin for a while, it's heartbreaking. There were so many things. That he would do tests for and he'd do all the setup out only to have the financing fall apart or, you know, well, you know the drill. Yes. You know, the executive who's behind the project leaves the studio and the next guy kills, you know, the previous guy's darlings and it just goes on and on. But 
On the other hand, though, again, we have this wonderful, warm, fuzzy stop-motion thing, and I now have to talk about (laughs) what you sent me earlier today, which is the trailer for House, or The House. The House. Care to talk about this one? Because this sort of looks like this is ideal for that person who's not looking to have a Merry Christmas or certainly a Happy New Year. Because, what, this doesn't drop till January 14th, 2022, Yeah, it's been on my, you know, I'm very spoiled and it's been on my preview row for a couple of weeks Mm -hmm. now and I have not watched it yet. But it's basically... You know, I think uh, four different filmmakers who are just um, basically like the cutting edge of independent animation. And they each contribute a story about this house and the kind of surreal going ons inside of it. So each team or each animator does a separate room in this house. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, it looks very cool. And, you know, the reason why I brought it up, too, because Mm -hmm. in addition to Flight Before Christmas, Netflix Mm -hmm. just has an amazing lineup of stop motion animation this year between Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, which he told me is about 60% finished right now. And obviously the one you and I are very much waiting for the Henry Selleck, uh, Wendell and wild. And I think that chicken run two might also be this year. So, I mean, it's just going to be a crazy busy year for stop motion and Netflix. And if you want a little taste, I guess, of Pinocchio and Wendell and wild, I think the house Hmm. will probably do it because it's just so creepy and weird. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I mean, I, I got to say, from just the teaser, I mean, it, don't get me wrong, it's masterful animation, and, I mean, the stylization, really sinister, I mean, but sucks you into the world. I can't wait to see it. I'll just kind of watch it between my fingers. You're a sensitive. I live in a house in the woods, all right? I don't need, you know, and, you know, mysterious creatures came out of the woods <laughs> and went to the house. It's like, yeah, I don't I don't need that narrative. Okay. Yeah, you know, you, you live that. Yeah. I live that. Yeah. Okay, so again, January 14th, 2022, House on Netflix. And speaking of stuff that, well, at least started on Netflix, Mitchell's versus the Machine uh, debuted on streaming service back April 23rd of this year. Then that Sony picture got a very limited theatrical release, which you got to see, right? On the big screen. I've never um, seen it on the big screen. I, no! Yeah, I, I think I saw did. it. Yeah, the first time. I mean, I've seen that. I was was an early adopter of Mitchell's versus the Machine. In fact, the first time I saw it, it still had the, mm-hmm. the Sony-mandated title Connected. Um, so yeah, but the Blu-ray did come out this week. Did you pick it up? Just this week. No, I, in fact, I, I, Nancy asked me, we are, are, again, this is the the 17th. We are one week out and she has her list that I have to go out and collect. Uh, We have things that we have to get from my grand nephew and, and that sort of thing. So I'm hoping while she's distracted, I will just drop this in a, the cart as a Christmas present to me. But again, this is the the one that's got all of the ex, uh, amazing extra features. Oh right? yeah, or, yeah. I mean, did you see that hilarious video that they put up on on Twitter this week with with the voice of Katie Mitchell, Abby Jacobson, kind of going through all the speech features as Katie Mitchell? It's it's really really funny. Um, okay. But yeah, I mean, everything okay. about the disc and the features mm-hmm. is just amazing. You know, it mm-hmm. looks like she kind of burned the disc herself. It's got handwriting on it and. Uh, Tons of special features, a version of the movie with 40-something extra minutes of rough animation in there, storyboards. And, um, yeah, I just I love this movie so much. I was on the phone earlier today with Mike Rianda mm-hmm. and Jeff Rowe, who are both very oh! busy people. 
Yep. But Jeff was like, he's doing the Ninja Turtles movie right now, and he's like, you know, deep in it. And uh, oh. Mike is helping out on, uh, hmm. on on another project as well. So I mean, they were just so busy, but so nice to make the time uh, for me. Oh, that's great. But that's uh, great. yeah, I cannot. I can't wait to kind of dig into it. I hope. Uh, I hope it's on my Christmas list. Santa remembers me too, Jim. That's all I'll say. Okay. Well, well, you're talking to the fat man. Also add to the list The Art of Maya and the Three. I got my copy, of which I ordered weeks ago. And it was one of these things that got tripped up by the supply train issues. I want to say it was initially supposed to be out closer to the actual debut of this thing on, on Netflix. But it's a gorgeous 208-page hardcover book and, and just takes you all the way through to Jorge's vision of how this Netflix series came together. And it, Don't it you wish you had make... shown up to the interview now? I, I, I knew you were going to bring that up. I just, so, you know, again, I was out to lunch with Nancy, and it was like 1 o'clock, and it's like, we have to leave now. We've got to go to the house because i I got I to gotta be on Zoom at 1.30 to not to miss this interview because I'm not doing the horror thing again. <laughs> but I, I, I did. I showed. So, you know. Yes. But. Okay, now, uh, okay, we've done a lot of talking about Netflix this show. We should, all right, pivot now to Disney and... If we must. We, we must. I, you know, because the thing you sent me, the, the Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur teaser actually looked really good. Yeah, it's got a really good look to it it's, mm-hmm. and a great energy. And I love that Lawrence Fishburne is executive producing and uh, voicing uh, one of the characters. He's the best. Ooh. For me, what was kind of fun about the trailer is they start off with Lawrence with the music stand in front of him, you know, with the script and all that. But then they cut to black and he's still talking and you're like, oh, that's a great voice for animation. Holy cow. Oh, can't wait for this. So this is showing up on Disney Channel summer of 2022. And this is, you know, the first time I've actually seen the show description. So, again, it's Marvel's Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur. It follows the adventures of 13-year-old super genius Lunella Lafayette and her 10-ton T-Rex Devil Dinosaur. And after Lunella accidentally brings Devil Dinosaur into present-day New York through a time vortex, the duo work together to protect the city's Lower East Side from danger. You know, that old story. (laughs) (laughs) I just, you know, and it just, it tells you as a 60-year-old, I just look at the world differently and it's like, ooh, I really hope the lease had something on there about pets. You know, because it's like (laughs) when you show up with a 10-ton dinosaur, somebody's going to tell the landlord. Beyond that, also, you found that story in Deadline today about the Witchverse it's based on a VR experience called Baba Yaga, which I never have seen, and I don't know if you have seen, but it is basically, from what I have been told, it's sort of a celebration of witches throughout history, and it's an animated anthology along those lines. You know, it's got great people behind it. Obviously, uh, Eric Darnell, who is the writer and director of the project, you know, worked on Madagascar, Ants, and he co-founded this studio and is the chief creative officer, and he's going to executive produce. So, you know, that's very cool that he's sort of continuing the saga of Baba Yaga. But, um, yeah, I mean, you brought up an interesting point that they cancel a project exactly like this, and now they're mm-hmm. doing this one. Do you want to talk about your your well, thoughts yeah, here? And, and again, no disrespect to Eric. You know, again, happy that Disney branded television is is partnering with Babawak, you know, studio to do, you know, witch, the witch first, but think about it. 
Back in October of this year, you had Dana Terrace, the creator of Disney's Owl House, which also some witches, also some magics, also recently honored with a Peabody Award in the children's and youth programming category. And, you know, an Owl House had stories planned out through a fourth season, but it suddenly gets cut short after just two seasons have aired. And, and in fact, what's the deal with the third season? They're doing just three specials now, right? You know, yeah, sort of I think off. they're double. Ep- I'm, I'm sure they're double episode sort of length. But yeah, it, I'm so depressed about this. Owl House rules. No, it was wonderful. But, they, but here's the thing. Dana... Harris, creator of Alho, said that the run of this acclaimed animated series was cut short because business people at the Mouse House did not believe that Owl House fit into the Disney brand. And she said this back in October of this year. So how is it that just two months later, Disney is now genuinely interested to get into the, the witch first business, doesn't? That seems a touch contradictory to me, Drew. Yeah, yeah, I don't get it. And I didn't even think about this until you brought it up, but yeah, now I'm pissed. (laughs) Well, all right, don't mean to be a dick here, bring up controversial stuff. Because we should actually be congratulating Disney today, because as you pointed out, what, they snagged three best animated feature slots in the Critics' Choice Awards coming up. Yes, my my beloved Critics' Choice, which I'm now a part of this year. So blame me. We got Encanto. We got Raya. We got Pixar's Luca, which my money is on. But we also have Flea, Jonas Palmer, Rasmussen's animated documentary. And hey, look, Mitchell, Mitchell's versus the Machines. Where have I heard that name before? You know, I ran. I was telling you before I ran into a friend of the show, Josh Gad, at the Spider-Man No Way Home premiere. Uh, and we were just talking about how much we both love Encanto, and you mm-hmm. know Jared Bush showed up at the theater to present Encanto to Josh's family, which I thought was so cute. Oh, but yeah, that's so good, killer. good Holy folks cow. being sweet is what I always love. So, but not everybody's good though, Jim. You know what no, I mean? No, 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 no. And in fact, you know, that's a wonderful lead-in tease for, for what we're going to talk about next. The bad guys. Oh, my God. That teaser trailer that dropped this week. Yes. This one's been kind of bubbling out there. We've been hearing about this one for a while, but I never expected it to be that strong, that good, right out of the box. Seriously, folks, if you haven't seen the teaser trailer... Go do that now. More to the point, go to YouTube and watch. What It's a table read, right? Yeah, so it's sort of a truncated table read of a scene. It was used internally at DreamWorks, and then they decided to put it out because it was so cute, mm-hmm. which you'll understand why, because the cast of this movie is amazing, and they all mm-hmm. have really great chemistry. But, you know, it's Sam Rockwell, Aquafina, oh, Zazie yeah. Beetz, uh, Mark Marin is in the cast. I mean, just a great cast. And they, yeah, the look of this movie is so great. Uh, Pierre Parafel, we'll say his le- le- maybe. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, he worked on the that movie in the Outback that, and he directed the short film that came out of that. So, oh. would you remember that? What was it called? The Bilby or something? Yeah. So, yes. yeah, yeah. So, so it's great to see him take on a mm-hmm. feature. And yeah, this is a movie that does not look like any DreamWorks movie you've ever seen. It doesn't even look like any animated movie you've probably ever seen. So check it out. It is 
going to be awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, arriving at theaters April 22nd of next year. Yes. Which can't get here fast enough. That, no. that should look amazing. And speaking of things that soon will be here after this commercial break, Drew and I will, well, uh, not just share a terrific interview with Walt Burchard, but we'll also follow up on a story from last week about those changes that were uh, recently made to a certain ride at Disneyland Park. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Before we get to my interview with that curator from the Met, I wanted to circle back on a story that Drew and I covered on the last episode of Fine Tuning, which was the cover-up that's now going on at Roger Rabbit's cartoon spin at Disneyland Park. How the Jessica Rabbit figures, I want to say there's at least three of them within the ride, that that can be seen inside this Mickey's Toontown attraction. I've all traded in that low-slung red spangly dress that Jessica wore in the original Who Framed Roger Rabbit when we released to theaters back in June 1888. These days, when you see Jessica inside of Cartoon Spin, she's wearing a very Dick Tracy-esque yellow hat and long trench coat, which means that Jessica's famous curves are now hidden from sight. So on our last show, Drew and I were bitching and moaning about how Disney... Well, we were, okay? Uh, you know, yes, yes, we were. <laughs> yeah, okay, but uh, how Disney was effectively censoring the theme park version of Jessica Rabbit, which seemed weird given that Walt Disney Studios Home Entertainment had just released a 4K version of Who Framed Roger Rabbit. This hit store shelves just 10 days ago on December 7th. And if you look at the cover, Drew, Jessica's front and center on the ultra-high-def release, you know, in her bright, spangly dress. And this re-release of Who Framed Roger Rabbit was so popular with animation fans this holiday season that Amazon currently has it listed as temporarily out of stock. That just wow. that they came out and people grabbed them all up. But as loyal fine-tuning listener Joe Nacella pointed out, censoring Jessica Rabbit has been going on for decades now. And I'm almost embarrassed that you and I didn't mention this because remember, remember that scene at Who Framed Roger Rabbit where where Benny's coming out of the tunnel from Toontown and uh, hits well, that puddle of death. Yeah, we, know. Uh, well, I didn't think we. Uh, I mean, we, this is a family friendly show, Jim. It is. It is. So, so uh, forgive how, me. How I, can I you? Bridge. How can you? T- how can we talk about this without? Uh, with I Ava still being able to listen, what is what I'm okay, saying? Okay, well, well, here's what I've, I've tried to do. So, okay. As Benny strikes the light pole, Jessica flies out of the cab. And as she flies through the air, it is revealed in a single frame of animation that Mrs. Rabbit may have forgotten to put on her underwear that day. So, okay. okay. 
There we go. Okay. And the thing is, remember that Richard Williams, the director of the animation for Who Framed Roger Rabbit, you got to assume Robert Zemeckis also knew about this, right? But they allowed this to go on during the production of this Amblin Touchstone Pictures production because Richard knew that this sort of thing had gone on in animated films since as far back as the 20s and the 30s. That this is why Williams, for example, allowed the animators to slip in that single frame of of Betty Boop standing topless in the Ink and Paint Club, and likewise that that single frame of Baby Herman seeming to jam his hand up you know, a woman's skirt while looking up lasciviously. And it just... And Richard felt, I'm confident doing these single frames of somewhat lewd content, because in 88, who was going to see this? It was only the people in the industry. The only... And, and then again, only folks who had... Access to like moviolas or editing bays that could literally stop the film for the one frame and up, oh, look there, there, you know, there's the naughty thing. But of course, Williams didn't realize that things like a Laserdisc and Blu-ray were, were on their way to the marketplace, which would then allow members of the general public to, in the privacy of their own homes, go frame by frame through Disney animated features and then find things like that. You remember the Playboy Playmate that was in the window of the yeah, rescuers? Yeah, it was like a cutout from a magazine yeah, they had put yeah. in the window. Yeah. So again, want to point out that that wasn't just something that happened in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Disney's own animators on the mothership on the Burbank lot were doing the exact same thing. Yeah, I do think there is a difference between cutting out what is clearly X-rated material mm-hmm. and just sort of neutering a... <laughs> A figure, several figures that have been in a ride since the late 90s. So I I do think that there it definitely continues the history of kind of editorial mm-hmm. censorship of the Who Framed Roger Rabbit property. Mm-hmm. But this one seems a little bit weirder and more insidious to me. No, no, no. I, I get that. But at the same time, I, I appreciate Joe pointing yes. this or reminding us of it. Yes, there, like, is a, I, there is a precedent. Okay. There was a there reason is, that there. I did not bring that up. <laughs> I will say that. But okay, yes. all right. Anyway, I, moving I, I, on. I, moving on. Okay, and to my knowledge, no imagery of this kind can be found in Cinderella or Sleeping Beauty or Beauty and the Beast. On the other hand, if you'd like to go behind the scenes on the tr- this trio of animated features, learn more about what influenced the look of these three timeless films. Well. You need to head to the Met in New York City before March 6th of this year. That's when inspiring Walt Disney, the animation of French Checkered Varts, ends its run in the States and then heads overseas to London. Uh, Wolf Burchard, the curator of this amazing exhibition, was kind enough to sit down with me recently via Zoom and discuss how this Metropolitan Museum of Art exhibition actually came together. What follows is a slightly edited version of that interview. We're here today talking with art historian Wolf Burchard. He's the curator behind the terrific new exhibition that just opened at the Metropolitan Museum of Art this past Friday, December 10th, entitled Inspiring Walt Disney, the Animation of French Decorative Art, which runs at the Fifth Avenue branch of the Met through March 6, 2022. Thanks for coming on Fine Tuning Today, Wolf. Um, can you please talk a bit about the origin of Inspiring Walt Disney, which is supposedly the Met's first ever exhibition that focuses on the work of Walt Disney and the artists that worked for his studios for, God help us, nine decades at this point? <laughs> yes, of course. Well, first of all, Jim, thanks so, so much for for having me. Um, so 
It is. It is indeed the first ever exhibition at the Metropolitan Museum devoted to Walt Disney, which which is a major, uh, which is a major event. Simply uh, considering that Walt Disney is arguably one of the most impactful cultural figures this country has ever produced. So I felt quite strongly that the Metropolitan Museum, as this great encyclopedic museum, should grant entry to Walt Disney, who has had an impact not only on American culture but really on global culture. Mm-hmm. Um, so in in looking at the work of Walt Disney, and I should I should emphasize that while I always entertained a keen interest um, on hand-drawn animation, mm-hmm. um, my field of specialization is really the 17th and 18th century historic interiors, furniture, decorative arts, etc. Mm-hmm. And so looking at at Walt Disney, I thought um, Walt Disney would benefit from from being examined through an art historical lens and to help many people to understand just the extraordinary amount of research that went into the making of so many films and to highlight um, the the extraordinary artistry that lies behind the making of these films, which in a way is a kind of archaic art form because hand-drawn animation as we present it in the exhibition doesn't really exist like that anymore. Um, And so really highlighting this was very, very important. And by highlighting the extraordinary collaborative effort and the extraordinary um, development in artistry that the Disney studios saw over the course of the 1920s, 30s, 40s, etc. We also wanted to highlight um, the same kind of collaboration and artistry that lies behind the objects with which we have paired the Disney material. So the 18th century objects, all of which are the products of um, large collaborative efforts, and particularly porcelain. There's 60 incredible pieces. I mean, there's there's furniture, there's porcelain, dishware, but I love how crazy deep you went with this. Like, for example, you found the very first piece of art that Walt Disney ever donated to the Met. It's that cell of the vultures from exactly. Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs with the painted background that, if I'm remembering correctly, donated in 38. But what I love is that you still manage, I mean, here we are in 2021, but you'd make that very smart choice of making people familiar with the, the Frank Nugent piece that was done for New York Magazine, where as this piece was donated to the Met, there was actually the story that included the, the headline to the effect of it's Disney, but is it art? And in a weird sort of way, this exhibition sort of validates that point, you know, because well, it's it- yeah, it, it asks the same question. It's, it's extraordinary that this is 1938 and people are still today asking the same question. Is yes. it Dis- It's Disney, but is it art? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and although, I mean, there, there, there are quite a few people, it, it, it's, it was very interesting when I was, when I was, you know, trying to put this exhibition on the books and, and mm-hmm. said that I'd like, that's an exhibition I'd like to do. There mm-hmm. were some who weren't challenging this at all because they would agree this is Disney, it's art, it's popular culture, it's very important, and we should explore this. And others who challenged this 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 position said, do we really want to have a Disney exhibition at the Metropolitan Museum? And this is why um, discovering this vulture, which um, a colleague in the prints and drawings department pointed out to me was mm-hmm. was absolutely wonderful because it was discussed in the press extensively at the time and you and you made reference to the New York Times magazine article asking that question and and there were lots of other articles and um 
and and they all commented and said, you know, the Metropolitan Museum isn't blushing about it, or none of the trustees threatened to quit. So I was able to say, okay, guys, if this was okay in 1938, surely it must be all right in 2021. Again, what's fascinating is how little things have changed. If you think about it, back in the 30s when Disney made the original Snow White or when they made Cinderella, there were those folks who hailed Walt Disney as a genius. But at the same time, there were those folks who were concerned about how the Disney animated versions of these classic fairy tales would then perhaps overshadow the original stories by the Brothers Grimm or Hans Christian Andersen. And speaking of Hans Christian Andersen, I love how crazy deep you went with your research. I'm assuming you went to Disney's animation research library to unearth. I mean, you have images in here of the very, very early unproduced version of The Little Mermaid that Disney was was mm-hmm. thinking of doing. Likewise, there's a, a wonderful piece of art from a version of the Emperor's New Clothes that that you know yes. never made it out of development. And and, and again, I, I love that you found these pieces. Well, you know, I obviously worked very closely with the uh, animation research library, and actually, it's it's interesting. You should you should um, mention this. Unfortunately, and, and this is something really one needs to to be aware of, this whole exhibition was curated during COVID. I was supposed to go to Los Angeles for three months and go through all the uh, Animation Research Library's collection and carefully select the various works on papers I wanted to put on display. And they look after 65 million works on paper. So, you know, it was going to be a dream to, to go through the collection with them together. But all of this was cancelled. I had been there twice before, but very briefly, and had seen some of the some of the relevant works relating to Cinderella or indeed to uh, Beauty and the Beast. Um, but then I, I worked with many secondary sources. Didier Gates has published, uh, I think, six volumes. Yes. So and so yeah. so there's quite a few that uh, quite a few works that are in the in the exhibition that I actually selected on the basis of his publications, um, oh. because I saw those and thought, okay, this this fits the bill. This works etc and so um so the the exhibition may have looked completely different had i had been able to to go but it is extraordinary what we were able to do uh during covid and so um the colleagues at disney just sent me huge amounts of pdfs and and so i always asked very specific questions with for instance regards to the original uh um concept work for the little mermaid dating from the 1940s uh or or indeed the emperor's new uh, clothes etc mm-hmm. um and it was it was a challenge to edit and i think we've got about the right amount of works on paper in the exhibition you don't want an exhibition like that to be too big and too overwhelming oh, no, because no no i want to say it's five rooms is that correct it's with... it's about five or six rooms yes and you don't mm. and you and you also not only do you want people to you want people to look carefully and closely at these mm. objects uh, i think they have they benefit from it much more if there's less on which they can focus than if you have such a huge um, array of, of drawings with little interpretation that you just sort of consume it as it were. No, and no. so I obviously, yes, worked very closely with them, uh, but mm. virtually. And so it was also because there are some things that I hadn't seen in person before. Mm. Wonderful when we opened the crates, installed the exhibition to see that every object was just as good and normally even better than what I hoped they were going to be. So it was quite the revelation. Wow. Okay. Well, the, having spent one wonderful afternoon at the ARL, and 
I want to say the company of Fox Carney, I, you know, really seriously, I feel for you missing out on the, the three months out there, but on the other and hand, of course, Mm-hmm. It's, and Fox was my my great counterpart, and he was brilliant. And as you can imagine, I thought always it was quite funny that you know his name is Fox, my name is Wolf, and so we have all these emails going, "Dear Wolf, yours Fox," and vice versa. And it doesn't really get much more Disney than that, does it? It does not. It does not. Okay, so in the end, you chose 150 pieces of production artwork and works on paper, which weren't just pulled from the ARL, uh, also come, came from the company's uh, corporate archives, likewise WEIs collection of theme park blueprints and concept paintings, and even the Walt Disney Family Museum. Uh, By the way, is that where the miniatures came from? Exactly, yes. So that's Walt Disney's personal collection. And they also have been absolutely wonderful and and generous. So it was a great joy working both with the colleagues of the ARL, of the archives of Disney Imagineering, as well as the Walt Disney Family Museum. I have to stress here, if you're a fan of Disney's Beauty and the Beast, you're going to love touring the Inspiring Walt Disney Exhibition, given, first of all, there are pieces here from uh, the original aborted earlier version of the animated feature, the the non-musical version that was Mm -hmm. being developed in London by David Purdom. Likewise, there are costume designs from the stage version of Disney's Beauty and the Beast that played on Broadway for 13 years and, you know, over 5,000 performances. And you even managed to get stuff in here from the IMAX version that Disney released to theaters in January 2002, where Disney's artists actually went back to the movie. Mm-hmm. You know, some 11... it's the footstool. I think yes. I think you're referring to the footstool. Yeah. Yes. So there's great pieces of concept art from that film by Chris Sanders and Joe Grant, and they're all so smartly positioned right alongside or behind. 60 works of 18th century European decorative art and design. And like I said, everything from tapestry to furniture to to clocks and porcelain. And and again, what's so smart, you as a curator, let the patron as they tour the gallery make the connections themselves. The the room with the couch. I love the story there where you tell about the the gentleman who's cursed to be a couch until he until he yes. hears a, a, a pro, pro, proclamation of true love. Is that it? Am I getting the yes, story? Right? Yes, yes. So it's this is so as part of telling the story about uh, about the genesis of the, of the various films, we also want to go back to the roots of. Mm-hmm. Of, of those stories. So for instance, Beauty and the Beast was written originally in 1740. And then mm-hmm. the immediate circle, as 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 you will know, the, mm-hmm. the original version of Beauty and the Beast doesn't actually uh, comprise the, the sort of trio mm-hmm. of supporting cast members, a clock, a teapot, and a candlestick. However, and this is pure serendipity because I, I, I spoke to Don Hahn about it and he didn't know this. And, and he said that his team didn't know this. The story about the sofa was immensely popular in the 18th century and written not only exactly around the time that Beauty and the Beast was written, but in the immediate circle, the immediate social circle of the author of Beauty and the Beast by a man called Crébillon, who was actually her stepson. They Mm -hmm. detested each other, Um, but, but they were very, you know, they, they were, you know, they were linked by, by, um, by his father, her, her lover. Mm -hmm. And he wrote this extremely popular story about a man turned into a sofa. Uh, His, his, he's cursed, his, his body is, and his soul are separated and his soul migrates from one piece of upholstered furniture to the next. Um, And he can only be turned back into a human being if he 
as it were, is the witness, the stage, if you will, of a true declaration of love. So what we wanted to do in the exhibition is really also highlight not only the story of Disney hand-drawn animation, but the attempts that 18th century artists made in animating objects, this whole idea of anthropomorphisms, that is not something that is new. It's something that goes through history. And so there were these stories about objects being brought to life um, and which were, of course, then developed in the imagination of, of the Disney animators later. Got it. Now, speaking of writing, you yourself wrote the catalog that goes along with inspiring Walt Disney, the animation of French decorative art. It's a 240-page hardcover. Now, mind you, you can't take any pictures inside of the exhibition space, but this book more than makes up for that. By the way, just suggesting would be a great Christmas present for any animation fans out there uh, available. In the I Met can gift. only support that. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> okay. Uh, available in the Met gift shop as well as the uh, Amazon. But you mentioned doing all this during the pandemic. It had to be tough curating an exhibit like this and writing a book like that uh, at the same time. It wasn't easy. So as I said, I, I, I was supposed to go to, to Los Angeles to do my research properly mm -hmm. in the Disney archives in person, but then had, had this incredible help from mm -hmm. the people there who provided me with all the information that they could share with me. Um, but uh, yes, then I had to, you know, sit down and write the book and I didn't have even, you know, the Metropolitan Museum was also closed for half a year. So oh, I didn't have access to our own archives that relate to our own objects. And indeed, the selection of our own objects, I in parts made without being able to go into the storeroom and having a look at them again. I mean, the good thing about the the three-dimensional decorative objects from our own collection is that I was quite familiar with the majority of them. But actually, and this is always a great reminder, when you see them in person, they always look much better and they always have much more presence. Um, and it's always a, a question of scale. And that really has been interesting also in the unwrapping of the, of the crates as things were brought out that even if you look at the measurements, you often find that something is smaller or bigger than you think. Um, the architectural drawings uh, you were referring to, there's this wonderful uh, architectural line drawing for the back of the Sleeping Beauty Castle in Disneyland, which really retraces the architectural articulation of Schloss Neuschwanstein in, in Bavaria. And when I saw that drawing, it was much more exciting than it looked in the photograph. Um, but then also from the Walt Disney Family Museum, one of the first objects in the exhibition and the earliest uh, object from Disney's own personal collection is a miniature photo album with photographs of Paris, um, which is in a teeny tiny metal frame. And actually this belonged to a German soldier, which makes it a really interesting object because it, it is one of those military tokens that Disney picked up in the immediate aftermath of World War One. So it's it's photographs of Paris, but it has the album itself has the Prussian royal crown encircled with the motto, a God with us, which which was the motto of the Hohenzollern. So it, it is an album of Paris, but which have been made for a German soldier. And, and he bought two of those amongst a great variety of objects that he brought back, sort of military tokens he brought back after World War One. But I had a photograph of it, and I suppose I never really looked at the measurements. When it arrived, I realized just how teeny, teeny, tiny it is. It's an oh, absolutely geez. minuscule, but making it a, a really rather charming and historically extremely interesting object. As an exhibition, it, it's so lovely laid out and just wonderful flow through with, with great stories and great art. But forgive me for putting you on the spot here, but do you have a, a favorite piece in the exhibition? Well, I'm not someone who believes in favorites. There are quite a few objects in the exhibition that um, that I am so thrilled to now see in, in person. If I really, really had to 
choose a favorite object, I suppose it would be the lead image of the exhibition, which is the most extraordinary Sèvres Tower vase, which was made 250 years ago, which um, has this pink lid and basically looks like a uh, looks like Sleeping Beauty's castle, but only made 250 years earlier. It's the most extraordinary piece of French porcelain. And what it suggests is not necessarily that Walt Disney saw those vases um, when he was working on uh, Disneyland, although they belong to the Huntington Museum in Pasadena. And we know that Disney visited the Huntington Museum, which is, you know, just down the road from the from the Disney studios. But what it suggests is that um, that the great artists of the Rococo, the great designers of the Rococo, were using similar methods in order to encourage our imagination when they were designing their their objects. Very cool. And speaking of which, that if I'm remembering correctly, that's actually the image that's used for the banner on the exactly. outside of the building. Yeah. Yeah. No. Beautiful exactly. piece. Beautiful piece. I, I, and again, forgive me for asking here, but but are you yourself a Disney fan? Because I I look at the audio guide, and you know, you've got Paige O'Hara, the the Broadway actress who voiced Belle in the '91 film. Likewise, you you mentioned talking with Don Hahn, who you got for the audio guide. Likewise, master animator Glenn Keane. Not to mention guest voice Angela Lansbury. So. You're clearly a guy who who knows his way around Disney fandom. Um, <laughs> well, I don't think anyone would go through all the trouble of trying to organize such an exhibition if they didn't entertain a certain degree of of passion for the subject. So yes, I I would say that I'm a, a, a I'm, I'm a Disney fan. I've always been a great 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 admirer of uh, Walt Disney hand drawn animation all my life, and uh, you know I'm I'm you know, part of the of the of the the generation of the Disney Renaissance. And every time a new Disney film came out, there was there was a uh, a moment of of great excitement. And I grew up in Europe. So you have to remember that when I grew up, these films at first came out a year later, and then later it was six months later. So so they usually then, you know, by the mid 90s, they were released uh, in the summer in the States, but then they always only came out in uh, in Europe in, in November. And those six months, especially when you're a child, those, those are long six months. Uh, and uh, anyway, it was always uh, very, very exciting. And to, and, and, and what, I, what this exhibition also made me realize is that I always looked at these objects like I would look at great works of art. And that is really what would encourage me then to do the exhibition because I was five years ago talking to two friends with whom I had done my PhD in, in art history. And I was talking about Glenn Keane and about the uh, transformation of the beast and the extraordinary um the, the the extraordinary work of art that this this piece of animation is and the foreshortening and the movement and the illusion of the weight of this heavy frame that's lifted up into the air and they said to me wolf you you have to do a disney exhibition as somebody who's been studying this company for lots of decades at this point i love that you you unearth that quote uh, of waltz which honestly i'd never heard before about the the privilege of being a child, which brings me to my other observation, how nice it was to arrive at the Met this past Sunday morning. We, we got there before opening and to see the long line outside of the building of the many parents who had brought their children. And then, you know, when I finally got inside the museum and made my way to the inspiring Walt Disney exhibit, to see that these very same kids were in that space with their parents who were using this opportunity to take the films that these children knew from, you know, that have been produced by Walt Disney Studios, but also using it as a gateway to introduce them to the, these pieces of French decorative art. And that was really kind of thrilling. 
Well, I'm 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 delighted you think so. It's it's imagine how thrilled I am <laughs> because that was that was really the the plan. It is it is an exhibition that is meant for a for a broad family audience and mm-hmm. and I think hopefully is as enjoyable for children and 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 young adults and I have given some tours and and they seem to enjoy them. Um but also for for very adult and and indeed academic audience and and that also has been very interesting, you know, it's 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 great to see that we're introducing um you know the the sort of traditional um disney fan to a new subject the subject of french 18th century decorative arts but simultaneously to also introduce a traditional a sort of more conservative met audience to the art of disney because they are they have been some people i've been talking to who weren't entirely convinced by the idea of of doing a disney show and they and i've had so many emails uh, of, of people saying wolf i I was totally in the wrong. This is so interesting, and you you really brought Disney animation to life, and as as a subject that that I didn't, you know, they just didn't realize um, what incredible works of art and collaborative works of art they were. So that you know, you can imagine, I'm I'm flying. I'm I'm delighted to see that, you know, it it seems to be doing exactly what we were hoping it would do. Well, that, that that's great to hear, but but also I I love the fact that, for example, you just mentioned Glenn Keane, and you know for that matter, as you tour the exhibit, you have lovely moments where you pay tribute to you know genuine Disney legends like Mary Blair and Ivan Earl, which let's face it, kids who have grown up today who are more familiar with Disney's CG films, you know the the mm-hmm. the Tangleds, the uh, the the Frozen's and the Moanas aren't necessarily familiar with. So I, I applaud you for you know carving out little moments in this you know exhibition to to pay tribute to those folks as well. And uh, and I think also you know and and I I really tried because I wanted to show a, a great variety of different mm-hmm. types of drawings. So you know in the exhibition we're not retracing every step. In, in explaining how animation is done, but we have uh, illustri- or, or, or works on paper that illustrate every single step in the creation of, mm-hmm. a, of an animated film and, and a great variety of, of Disney artists of all generations and some, some Disney artists like Mel Shaw who bridge several generation of, generation of Disney artists. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, so, and, and, and working in very many different ways. You have uh, the great selection of, of little gouaches by Hans Bacher for uh, the uh, the Beast's Castle, which are on a very small scale. So we, we show them as a group. And then you have other drawings that are on a much, much bigger scale. So, so you know, I'm, I'm, I'm relatively, I'm, I'm quite happy with the fact that you have a, a great variety and that although it's all on, over the sort of big moniker of, of, of Walt Disney as, as the lead and founder of the company, you see a great variety of different styles, different artists, et cetera. And it's obviously, as you know very well, just the tip of the iceberg because there oh, totally, is, totally. you know, hundreds of other films with thousands of other artists who've contributed to, um, to the success of uh, the artistic success of this film of these films well again i i, I just applaud your efforts here it was it was well worth the, the long drive down from new hampshire to check out this exhibit now uh, speaking of traveling though did, did did i hear correctly that the inspiring walt disney the animation of french record of arts 
once it closes the Met March, it, it, it is traveling. Is that correct? It is. It's going to the Wallace Collection in London. Mm-hmm. It is going to the Wallace Collection in London, which is um, which is really appropriate, uh, given the the close connection, well, the close geographical connection between the Gooch Street Studio, where the Purdom reel to which you referred was yes. shot, oh, wow. um, and so it's just a fifteen minute walk from from the Gooch Street Studio, mm-hmm. and the Wallace Collection. Um, uh, has a very important collection of French decorative arts that inspired some of the designs that were produced for the film, uh, for the for the original Perdam reel, and and most importantly Fragonard's The Swing, uh, of which you know we see a cameo appearance eventually in Frozen. But actually, the whole opening, the whole original opening of the uh, of the Perdam reel was going to pay homage to to The Swing That's because right. Bell would have been on the music a box. The music Music exactly box, yes. the music box exactly mm-hmm. the music box uh, that would then have sort of faded into this image of bell on a swing being pushed by her father and that is a reference back to one of the most iconic rococo pictures uh Fragonard's the swing and and this storyboard of the swing uh is shown for the first time to the public i mean it's never been shown to the public before oh, so no, that's no. very exciting and that's... so that will be shown alongside mm-hmm the original source of inspiration, Fragonard's Swing. So it's very exciting. So, you know, I know you've come all the way to New York to see the exhibition there. I do encourage you to oh, then <laughs> jump right. on a plane Ow. to go to London to see it there because it's going to be it's going to be different there. It's going to be um but it's going to be very exciting as well. And 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 the juxtapositions are going to be slightly different ones because the joy of this exhibition is that what's traveling to to London is the Disney material, which mm-hmm. will then be paired with the local Wallace Collection's collection of of 18th century French decorative arts. Oh, you're killing me. Okay. So, oh, all right. Well, okay. I I guess I'm going to London. All right. Well, well, well thank you so much for taking the time today. My That's pleasure. A, likewise, for, for putting together such a fun and informative exhibit. And just to remind you folks, we've been talking today with art historian Wolf Bouchard, who is the curator behind the terrific new exhibition that just opened at the Metropolitan Museum of Art this past Friday, uh, entitled Inspiring Walt Disney, the Animation of French Decorative art again this runs at the fifth avenue branch of the met through march 6 2022 that said though if you live in the uk when the london version of the exhibition finally opens up next year you really have to go and check it out and speaking of things you really need to check out if you're not already listening to light the fuse which is the other podcast that drew taylor does you are just genuinely missing out on something special so what's going on with light the fuse this week drew we are continuing our Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol celebration. I feel like we'll be doing this until uh, Top Gun Maverick comes out. We've recorded so many episodes about this Brad Bird film, but we love it. It's the 10th anniversary. Um, by the time you're listening to this, we've we've just done a uh, watch-along uh, on Twitter uh, for the 10th anniversary, so check that out if you want to see all of our insights and, and stuff there. But... Um, yeah. Uh, speaking of which, uh, seeing the insights, I saw the photo you posted on social media today of the it was the, the shot at in the skyscraper in Dubai. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh my god. I cannot imagine shooting that scene and dangling your A-lister out the window. I've been to that building too and I've been to the observation deck. You know, obviously I was such a fan. I was like we have to go there. It was it was mm-hmm. actually Christmas a, uh, a few years ago. 
And no. um, the observation deck is on, I don't know, the 80-something mm. floor. And Cruz was, like, several floors above that doing oh. this crazy stunt. So, yeah, it's just crazy. We also have heard a lot of funny stories about how the the chic of whatever let them use mm. his, his penthouse to... Mm-hmm to work and it's at the very top of the building and supposedly you know the building comes up to a point and at mm-hmm. the point there is of course a bathroom so that if you are sitting on the toilet your knees are pressing up against wind you know a window looking down however many floors to the oh. United Arab Emirates below you uh, yes yes oh. so taking your constitutional in the in the clouds Jim is what <laughs> what I imagine it's like but anyway yeah. Oh. Well, again, uh, this brings me to another point. Seriously, if you're not following Drew on social media, you're missing out on killer images like this. So, can you please tell them where they can find you on social yes. media? Yes, uh, it's Drew Taylor, like a tailored shirt on Instagram and Twitter, and Light the Fuse Pod if you want to see uh, crazy images of Tom Cruise dangling off of things. But you know, Jim, I have to ask you, what's going on with your podcast? What's going on with your social media? Social media-wise, if you're looking for us, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram as Jim Hill Media, and over on Facebook as Jim Hill Media News. I guess that's going to do that. Uh, uh, do it for this week, folks, and this will be our our holiday show for 2021. But uh, next week, well, it being the tail end of 2021, uh, maybe Drew and I will look back at this year in animation, and there was a lot of good stuff. There was so also much a lot stuff. of strange stuff. Yeah, yeah. but. But we'll talk about all of it on the next show, okay? 